Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings. I would love to see you on Instagram where you can add me at hstebbings1996 and you can submit the questions for future guests there. But to the guest today, and I'm thrilled to welcome an incredible founder in the form of Timo Rain, founder and CEO at Pipedrive, the startup that helps salespeople focus on actions that close deals. To date, Timo's raised over $30 million from the likes of Atomico, Bessemer Venture Partners, TransferWise's founder, Tarvat Hinrichus, and Andy McLaughlin at Uncle. Cork and has scaled the team to over 330 people across multiple continents. Prior to founding Pipedrive, Timo was a partner at Vane and Partners, acting in a consultancy role on how to get the best ROI from your sales process, and before that was himself, a door-to-door salesman with Southwestern Company selling high ACV products. I do also have to say a huge thank you to Teddy Wardy and Andy McLaughlin for suggesting such brilliant questions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, I want to talk to you about an amazing product, Stack Overflow for teams. You know what? Your engineering team already knows and loves Stack Overflow. They really don't need another tool they won't use. Get everything that 50 million people already love about Stack Overflow in a private, secure environment with Stack Overflow for teams. Try it today with your first 14 days free. And you can do that by heading over to s.tk forward slash Sasta. That's s.tk forward slash Sasta. Trust me, your developers will thank you for it. And another product your whole team will thank you for is Full Contact. The largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform with an identity graph of over a billion people providing the information and insights to help companies identify and build more authentic connections with customers and prospects. And from June the 6th to June the 8th in Denver, Colorado, Full Contact is bringing together leading minds from the world's data and marketing for the Connect 18 conference with incredible panels, keynotes and networking opportunities and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, Deloitte and more. Plus, listeners to the Sasta podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket to this incredible event for half price. Just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and then enter the code SASTA50 in the discount code box. And speaking of events, that's where Planning Pod comes in. Planning Pod is never satisfied with its complete event management platform. From event planning to promotion to check-in, its software does it all. With more than 24,000 people from organizations of all sizes creating over 5,000 events every month in Planning Pod. It really is a must. And you can learn more at planningpod.com. And to learn how you can plan for healthy revenue with integrated payments like Planning Pod did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But you've heard quite enough from me now. So without further ado, and I'm very, very excited to welcome Timo Rain, founder and CEO at Pipedrive. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Timo, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many great things, both from Jason Lemkin and Teddy Wardy. So thank you so much for joining me today. Harry, thank you for having me. Not at all, but I want to kick off today with a little about you and how you came to make your way into the world of SaaS and came to found Pipedrive. So what's that story? Well, I was born actually in Soviet Union, which was a Republic of Estonia, Soviet Republic of Estonia at the time, and regained independence in 1991. So that's where I grew up. I'm a husband and father of three. Also a psychology major, worked uh, in a professional recruitment firm for four years, and then built a successful sales training and consultancy business with two partners. I also sold door-to-door, but B2B and enterprise for most of my career. And in 2010, I founded Pipetribe with four other co-founders. And what we do is a sales action and sales pipeline management tool so that people in sales anywhere in the world could be very consistent in their daily and weekly effort and enjoy good results all the time. And 
and, and we're doing quite well. We're serving SMBs literally on every continent. I have to ask, and I, I can't not ask, given the enterprise and kind of B2B enterprise focus there that you mentioned in your past, why an SMB-focused pipe drive? I'm still trying to find the best answer to that question, actually. <laughs> Sorry, I was too intrigued. But I do yeah. want to break the interview state up into a couple of different segments. I want to start on the theme of internationalism, what that means for acquiring customers and pricing, building teams and cultures, and then finishing on that SMB market that we just touched on. How does that sound? Sounds promising. Okay, so starting on the theme of internationalism, you went international and global very early. So a question from Jason Lemkin. Why did you choose to go international so early? And what were the core benefits? Sure. I mean, I think biggest part of it was necessity. I mean, there was no other way. When you think of a home market, which is 1.3 million people as a population, and then you get to numbers which are actually there for you as potential customers, you just, you're kind of in a situation where you have to. And as far as, you know, SaaS, SMB goes, we had to look for customers really everywhere, but that's outside of our home market. So that's our story. In terms of benefits, we had to, I think, because of uh, that situation, think in global terms of what is the main problem to solve for everybody? And also, I think it also forced us to think what makes different regions approachable in a global manner and where localization is almost a must from day one. I also think that building that organization up that we built, which is able to serve a global customer base, is, is one of the benefits we had to do it from the beginning. But last but not least, you have to test marketing methods, which would work globally. There's no way around it. So even today, I think it gave us a head start and gave us a momentum, which we're using you know, to this day. I couldn't agree more on the kind of benefits of that immediate global mindset. I am intrigued by one element you said there, which was the, the localization element. How did you think about that? And how's that evolved today as a must? I think that it has taken us to different situations and tactics and strategy in, in depending on the market. I'll, I'll give you, for example, Latin America. It was one of the earliest localizations for us that we started with. And over the years, we've discovered just more and more elements where we could serve that market better if we had a slightly deeper localization. And there are certain markets and regions where we even haven't gotten to this question because it's been performing. You can take Netherlands, you can take some other you know, countries where people are quite fine with English. But yeah, Brazil, for example, wasn't that one. So Brazil and Portuguese, to get that language into the application, but also into the knowledge base, also into the marketing site, into all the chats that take place between customer support people and customers, that was something that we you know have to do and, and I, I'm quite proud we did. Well, we spoke about kind of localization of product there. I'm intrigued in terms of the different geographies and acquiring different customers in those different geographies. How did you manage to acquire such a global customer base? And did the acquisition strategies vary? And what were the kind of key lessons for you in doing that different acquisition strategy per geo? I, I think most of the things when I look back, I think that there's an element of toughness there to crackle. To get into certain early adopter circles first, I would be is one of the answers is, is for example, US it has an amazingly strong program for accelerators. So we went into one. It was AngelPad in San Francisco 2011. And angel investors and micro VCs, they're really well connected to SMBs, to influencers, and, and just getting the product into the hands. And as we worked through that network, it, it, it I think was very important. And what I already you know, told about, for example, Latin America, I think it's just understanding where we have to put in dedicated work to increase that level of localization. But 
not only that, but also getting the global pricing strategy to more or less right and then get the customers, which helps you to, to sort of create that advocate base as they pick up the product that all also has been proven to be very beneficial. You mentioned the pricing perspective there. I'm intrigued. What were the challenges in pricing the product for such a global audience in so many countries? Well, some people say that price is never right. So meaning that you can always think that you could change that or you should change that. I think it's probably true, right? But I mean, it has to be set somewhere. And we've tried to gauge the price which would work globally. Obviously means that we're overpriced in areas and we are underpriced in some others. So there are challenges that come from this. You look at the market, you think maybe regional pricing should be implemented like yesterday. And, you know, we've mostly stayed away from this so far. But more than pricing challenges, actually, I would say that payment methods and habits, which differ a lot from Brazil to US to Germany, this is where we've also wanted to make a difference. You know, working to get these as close to market as possible, which I have to say is a long and winding road of figuring that out, but also then putting that technology in place. I'm intrigued. We've spoken about the global mindset. It's even been global from a fundraising perspective. You've raised from both the US and Europe. How does fundraising differ for you from your experiences when comparing the two? Well, I've heard and I've also personally felt that there's some truth in saying that US West Coast sort of looks at customer and user growth first and that East Coast looks at P&L and budgets. And then Europe, you understand that the question becomes about time to profitability. So I think there are kind of differences there by these, maybe these subcultures or what they're called. But uh, for me, the main difference is US just has more VCs and angels in it, more companies, I would say, as well. Uh, so the concentration makes this situation like a good learning base and then people have just more experience. They're quite often also more aggressive about growth, which I don't think is necessarily the function of experience, but just maybe a mindset. And what I mean by this is short-term growth quite frequently puts founders and, and also companies and some investors to look for amazing results in 18 months rather than three or four years. So I would say somewhat more short-term also, especially early on. Europe, actually, I'm still learning about because I spent about four years in US and I came back last summer. So it's been very exciting to see some strong ex-entrepreneurs now, VCs, making the mark. But I'm continuing to understand what this network of investors and then how that fundraising differs. There are some differences, but I think the ones that I mentioned are the biggest ones for me. With those four years of experience kind of scaling in the US, question from Jason Lemkin who asked, what advice would you have for founders really looking to go big in their entrance into the US market, having done it so well with Pipedrive? Well, I think go to live in US is definitely a good advice that I could give. It's um, expected too expensive personally and for the business. But at the same time, there's a price you pay. You could also look at it from, from an investment point of view. Entrepreneurs and investors that I mentioned, just learn from them firsthand. There are so many things that experience gives, which is just the mistakes, like amount of mistakes that people have made that you can learn from. I think that's a major benefit. I remember one example from my own life where I went to door-to-door sales and, and I the only thing I asked from my friend who had done it before was what, what would be the one thing that you would not do or one thing that you would definitely do if you were to do it again. And the thing is, he said was one of the things that I kept in my head as a mentor. So there's, there's so many things where people feel that they made mistakes. And I think then just testing your product for that market fit, not only from a perspective of a product and what it does and what problem it solves, but it also is able to get through to the market. And I think US overall has this very simple mentality of getting to a customer because there's so much noise around there. So I think in some areas other than US, you might think you need a sophisticated approach in your messaging. In US, you have to be the simplest, easiest to understand, easiest to 
differentiate, and that's a valuable lesson. Pipe drives in an inherently competitive space. I'm intrigued. It's always a big question for me. How do you think about competition? Is it a kind of row your own race case for you, or is it very much a kind of benchmark and analyze the competition and, and very much peg yourself against them? I've always liked the fact that we have to do our work really well, and then take a look at what's what's out there as alternatives that we could learn from that we have to be aware of. But I don't want to take an approach of reacting first and then thinking what we should be doing uh, when it comes to our own thinking. So you would always find me in that sort of position that we need to understand what our vision is and what we need to do and compare ourselves and our pace against completing that. And then the competition, which can also be quite interesting. I mean, I found that SMBs, they have different sorts of experiences. Some have an experience, especially when it comes to industry like ours, have an experience of different vendors in a, in a CRM space or sales management tools. And a large number of them have an experience of using notebooks and analog tools of the world, just an email client and things like that. So we have to be really careful in understanding who and what we're competing against and not just look at the immediately comparable vendors and look at the check marks into the features that we are maybe serving our customers with as well, or maybe not. So for me, the, the main key is figuring out what we need to do and having that path and then comparing our road and, and pacer against that. No, absolutely. I completely agree on that kind of consumer education and what they need. I do want to discuss another element that you mentioned earlier, which is the team itself. Very challenging in terms of being so global so early with the team. The question again from Jason Lemkin, how do you look to manage a team that's distributed so far across the world? And have there been some kind of core takeaways from you from scaling this team? Well, I think this is just hard. I've worked in a setting where you have one location. You can always go there. You can find the people there. You know that everything that is going on, going around is here. You can kind of feel it all the time. But the first thing when you have locations which are really in different areas, different continents, you need to manage that separation somehow. And I think second, you need to manage the communication that happens between these locations. So the questions that we've asked, like, can these parts of the organization actually be separated? What will stop these different locations from falling apart? How do we set up internal comms? And I think that maybe we've done something right, but I've mostly seen that we've done so many things wrong too, because that's where we you know, learn and, and understand that we need to address things. Can but I ask, I what, have, what have you done most wrong, do you think? I think we've underestimated the importance of keeping people in the loop in terms of the communication and also keeping people on the ground that make them feel part of that global business. So what I believe in is that you need to have a person on the ground that matters to local people first. So you could all already go wrong there. I think we have done more or less right there. So you need to find a person who's not just like you know your buddy who, who you know and it's just a matter of relocation. No, you need to find somebody who is in that culture and makes people feel that this is us here. At the same time, as a paradox, you need to have a feeling that someone from global leadership either, either resides or visits the place enough and that you know, people feel that they matter. And this is where I think we haven't always found the right combination because it's difficult when you have four or five locations around the world. And some functions and teams, I also feel, can be split between locations. You can think of support, engineering, but some are much tougher to split, as we've learned, which is the core marketing team. And then when 
it comes to just leadership, as a last point, I would say that leadership in a global company, they can forget about not traveling. I mean, their office is probably better described by time zones they are frequently in rather than a, a location. I would love to kind of stay on this theme, though, because we, we mentioned the scaling of the team there. Teddy Wardy tells me now over 300 people. How do you ensure then, and this is his question, I have to give him credit, but with over 300 people, how do you ensure the new recruits have a values fit? He mentioned your kind of unique perspective on values fit. So how do you ensure that now with the scale of Pipedrive, everyone has that similar values fit that you wanted from day one? When you think of people, I think it was Shrek who said that Shrek is like an onion, but now people are like onions. It's very tough to peel to get to the core. And what we do usually when we hire people is that we use some tactics which just help us. They're not as sophisticated, I would think. What we do is keep the process longer. We want to get more people involved in the hiring, not just one or two people, but uh, some people from a team. We do have some formal events like boot camps for people who join so that you get a feeling of, of what it means to get into this company with some other people, not just you in some location. We have a founder interview, which we've kept, and we also attempt to gauge the character fit besides professional fit. And when we talk about values and things like that, I don't actually like values as a word because it makes me feel as something we aspire, not necessarily something who we are. So I like when we describe character components instead, something that makes you who you are and so that you can be that person. When it comes to what we look for in everybody, and I think that is something that helps us in in that scale, we look for people who are driven with a very high standard and no excuse as an individual. And then we look for people who, being that, actually want to join teams and, and work with an open and, and, and humble mind. And at the end of the day, they care about not ruining other people's days as a, as a habit. Because, you know, when you put pressure on an organization, somebody is not going to feel that great. The question is, does that become a habit or people actually figure out how to work together? You mentioned the slightly elongated process that you pursue there. I'm intrigued. Right. I often hear the term hire fast, fire fast. Does that mean you'd maybe disagree with the hire fast sentiment? Part of me definitely says yes. We want to understand people, especially in the critical roles. We take more time there. And at the same time, sometimes the experience tells you that maybe you should have just hired you know, somebody quickly into the organization. Maybe you should have just learned very quickly. And, and if it works, it works. It works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And, and you're just quicker to this learning experience. I think there are different ways of doing this. And our way is, has been much more about getting a strong understanding whether that person delivers on a, on a professional and a character side. And at the same time, we must make mistakes still, obviously. And uh, and that's where I mostly think that maybe we should have hired faster and, and not taken that long time. So that is where I give it to people who do it different ways. Our way was what I described. Now, you mentioned your way, and you mentioned your way, especially with the character component. I'm interested because Pipedrive turns salespeople into sales warriors. So I have to ask, how does one create this kind of sales culture of, of warriorship and, and accountability and goal setting, but without the fear of maybe missing your numbers? How do you think about that, both maybe from Pipedrive's perspective and then kind of broader from a macro perspective? I like that question because it makes me want to ask a question back. It's like, where do you get that question? But it's a very good one. So I'm not going to ask, but but, uh, but that's my uh, curiosity. It's my, it's my biggest question of how do you set kind of incredibly ambitious driven goals mm-hmm. without creating this demotivated team when maybe they don't get hit sometimes? Right, right. So it's a good one. First of all, I don't believe actually that fear ever goes away when you're in sales. I believe that fear can also be looked at as a almost like a prerequisite to confidence. The reason being, I think you can be confident when you know what to 
fear. For example, you should fear not making your foundation strong, or you should fear not doing the basics over and over. And, and you should also fear that you're not sticking to your schedule enough. But I think that process that, uh, that, that is known and calculated to get victories in sales has to take over the role of, of being the main driver, not the fear. And driving that process and having the culture around it, this is what I've seen helps people and also organizations to help send that fear into the background where it belongs and is kind of useful. But I'm, I don't believe that it can be fully put aside and, and eliminated from, from the system, which I do think that it actually serves a purpose. Uh, one super nerdy passion of mine, and this really is a nerdy one, is ramp time for salespeople. Uh, given the enterprise background that you mentioned before your pipe drive days, and now kind of with the extensive experience of pipe drive, how have you seen the ramp times differ when comparing SMB sales to enterprise sales for those reps themselves? You would somewhat think that enterprise has more to dig in, uh, in a way, to understand different companies and the processes tend to be longer as the volumes tend to be uh, bigger. Uh, sorry, no, not the volume, but, but the size of, of deals. I would still say that depending on the role, obviously, whether we're talking about people who spend most of their time qualifying or spend their time closing the actual accounts, I would still say that it's really important if you want to have a differentiated product and a person out there you can trust. So you have to get to know the customer business and you have to get to know the actual product. So I would like this ramp up time to be long enough so that people get to know what it is that they are doing and who they're doing it for. But uh, but yeah, I, I actually haven't thought about it. So I'm not, not, not going to even go and speculate here, to be honest. I Open told you it. it was a nerdy question, but I do want to finish today. And before we move into the quick fire round on mm-hmm. the SMB market itself, pipe drives attacked it so well, but I speak to so many VCs and they say, oh, Harry, such low ACVs, SMBs just so hard. I'm intrigued. What do you make of this kind of statement and sentiment? And how do you think of optimizing the funnel to ensure that the continuous flow of converting leads? Again, I think some things have to be done really well. Well, product has to be very good. Otherwise, you don't have a chance. I think we've been on a good path, a lot of work to do, but that has created a very strong flow of leads coming in. Now you go towards converting. I think service has to be very good the same way. It's a software as a service, right? And I think we do work well with our customers before the join and during the lifetime, which has to be done really well in any business that wants to convert these leads. I actually think looking back when we didn't have a proper sales function at all in a company, then the conversion after we implemented a, a proper customer support function actually took a serious increase. And I just realized that, that that is a hard factor, not a soft factor. And then obviously it becomes a matter of figuring out how the marketing engine maintains efficiency under increased load, under acceleration. But you know, we keep learning. Again, it's not easy. You have to have different product offerings so that uh, people can choose between plans and the separate products so that you could also manage your revenue better and, and everybody can get what they need. You mentioned the element of customer support there. Is it possible to really implement this kind of really strong and sustainable customer support team with such low ACVs? It's often kind of common with customer success teams and enterprise. Is it possible doing that with the SMB and lower ACV market? I think it is, even though it has to be done in a way of looking into the whole P&L and understanding what sort of a cost structure you can sustain, because I would imagine that that becomes a tough decision point. I think this is where our distributed organization gives us an edge because we can look at the parts of the world where we can get really talented people and, and 
really hungry people to work. And yet we're not looking at the cost levels or living standards of, of a Silicon Valley on the West Coast of the US, for example. But I get it. It's a difficult one to get right. I believe that it has to be there. It's, again, by definition, software as a service. So we can't do one and not the other. No, absolutely. I do agree with kind of the centrality of it. But I do want to move to my favorite element of any interview being the quick fire round. So this one's very different to the other ones, Timo. And it's all because of your suggestion of doing the whole lot in 60 seconds. So thank you for that innovation. But this might be more challenging for you. So you might have shot yourself in the foot there. So are you ready to roll? Hold on, hold on. I'm going to put on my (laughs) seatbelt. Yeah, seatbelt's on now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Next stop is $100 million in ARR. What does Pipedrive look like at $100 million in ARR? I think it's an exciting company delivering a strong product and solid service. What keeps you up at night? I would say becoming too tense about small things or big things. Question from Andy McLaughlin. Who's your favorite angel investor? <laughs> Only possible answer, Andy. Ah, I mean, yeah, that, that check's worth it now for him. Tell me a moment in your life that served as an inflection point and changed the way you think. Business life, it would have to be a kick in the butt by a fellow door-to-door salesman who thought uh, me being a consultant was a cop-out and personal uh, life is really var- fragile and it's bigger than we can cope with and actually less meaningful unless we find that meaning. Favorite SaaS reading material? What is it for you? I would say listening material and maybe this podcast. I love it. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? That drive of a person actually matters more than I thought and I didn't think it didn't. Timo, as I said, I heard so many great things. It's been such a pleasure and I cannot wait to see Pipe Drive at 100 million and, and do the celebration with a mojito in person. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. And I do want to say a huge thank you again to Timo for giving up his time today to appear on the show. If you'd like to see more from Timo, you can find him on Twitter at Timo Rain. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasty. You can find us on Instagram at hstebbings1996. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, I have to think, has work become synonymous with email? Do you hear chat pings in your sleep? Well, good news. Stack Overflow for Teams is a private, secure home for your team's questions and answers. No more digging through stale wikis and lost emails. Give your team back the time it needs to build better products and you can do that by heading over to s.tk at sasta to try teams today with your first 14 days for free and another product your whole team will thank you for is full contact the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform with an identity graph of over a billion people providing the information and insights to help companies identify and build more authentic connections with customers and prospects and from june the 6th to june the 8th in denver colorado full contact is bringing together leading minds from the world's data and marketing for the Connect 18 conference with incredible panels, keynotes and networking opportunities and featuring speakers from world-class companies such as Google, Oracle, Nestle, Deloitte and more. Plus, listeners to the Sasta podcast have the very special opportunity to purchase a ticket to this incredible event for half price. Just go to fullcontact.com forward slash connect and then enter the code SASTA50 in the discount code box. And speaking of events, that's where Planning Pod comes in. Planning Pod is never satisfied with its complete event management platform. From event planning to promotion to check-in, its software does it all. With more than 24,000 people from organizations of all sizes creating over 5,000 events every month in Planning Pod, it really is a must. And you can learn more at planningpod.com. And to learn how you can plan for healthy revenue with integrated payments, like Planning Pod did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com 
Facebook.com forward slash Sasta. And I do want to say again, I so appreciate all your support. It means the world to me and I cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.